Good to see everybody. Today is the Lord's Day, and He calls you to bring all your cares and burdens and come near to Him. He wants to feed you. So welcome. My name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the Word. We are in the midst of our Law of the Lord series in Psalm 19, and we come to the eighth verse. Let me read it for us, and we'll get into it together. Psalm 19, 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Let's pray. Dear God, we lift you up above all things. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. And in our sin, you give us grace upon grace. Thank you, Lord. Teach us again what it means to conform to your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you are preparing to run marathons this year, and we're praying for you. You'll be awesome. Uh, a few years ago, I heard about a woman named Courtney Dowalter. At her Minnesota high school, she was on the cross-country track and Nordic ski teams, recognized as an All-American. And in college, she raced for the Division I Nordic ski team at University of Denver. After graduating from there, she ran a number of road marathons and trail races. Now, at that point, this woman was looking like any other top athlete. She was gifted and accomplished, but that was not particularly unique. Well, in 2016, Doe Walter came in first place at two very well-known 100-mile ultramarathons. And in one of those, she set the course record over both men and women. The next year, she ran that same ultramarathon and won again, even while running the last 12 miles in total blindness. This is when people started to notice her worldwide. Six weeks after that, with her sight restored, Doe Walter entered the Moab 240, which is one of the most difficult ultramarathons in the world, a trail stretching 240 miles across a brutal Utah desert with a net total of 30,000 feet of elevation. And not only did she win that race, she finished it in two and a half days with one minute of sleep and beat the second place by more than 10 hours. That's when I realized, okay, this person has something else inside of her. This is not just talent. Uh, no, this is a kind of drive, dedication, and capacity that only emerges from a lifetime of focus and repetition that many people are not willing to pursue. I begin with that because today's passage talks about a similar marathon-like goal God's Word has for us, and we've been building up to this, right? In verse 7a, we saw how God's law revives us through our repentance and submission. Uh, last week, we saw how God's testimony sustains us and makes us wiser as we trust him. And now in verse 8, going a step further shows us uh, that there's a long-term effect the word has in our hearts, and that is to bear holy fruit. Uh, See, we may not all be like Courtney Dowalter physically, but spiritually, God has a goal for each of us to bear a character that only comes from a lifelong journey with him in his word. So here's our main idea. 
Following God's word over the long haul produces the fruit of joy and light, things your soul can't get anywhere else or overnight. Let me say that again. Following God's word over the long haul produces the fruit of joy and light, things your soul can't get anywhere else or overnight. Now, I'm highlighting that this is a long-haul journey because the two aspects mentioned here in our passage, joy and light, are often misunderstood as instant things, uh, right? People say they feel joy from a song or an event or feel enlightened when they learn about theology, and that may happen on some level, but true joy and enlightenment are things that develop over a journey. So three points to bring that out. Number one, following joy. Number two, following light. And number three, following perfection. First, following joy. The verse begins, the precepts uh, or the rules of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That word right means his rules are straight and always pointing in the proper direction for our life. And when we align with them, it says we rejoice. Now, in the Old Testament, rejoice means being glad or celebrating something God did for his people. But something interesting we notice about this word is that all throughout Scripture, into the New Testament, it appears in the form of a command, right? Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, Psalm 33. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It's a call to action. And what this shows us is that in the Bible, rejoicing is not always something that happened naturally or even easily for people. People needed to be told to rejoice constantly over time. Have you ever been told to be joyful? Uh, I won't name names to avoid embarrassing her, but I remember laughing when somebody here told me about one time when she was at Disney World with her family, and I guess things were not going as planned, and, went, and there were some frustrations. And in the middle of their trip, she just turned to her husband and yelled, are you even having fun? If she asked me that, I'd be so scared, I would try to have the greatest fun I could possibly have. Being told to be joyful is a strange thing, but that's often what God commands, which indicates that being joyful is more than a happy feeling. Um, deeper than that, it's an action or a habit. And so the psalmist is saying, the more regularly you align with God's word, you're practicing the act of joy. Let's pause there. Family of God, I want to suggest something to you that might be difficult for you to hear today, uh, but I hope you can hold it in your heart. Joy in Christ is best practiced in suffering. If joy is something that we do, then it's especially important when life gets hard. And I know that sounds paradoxical. How can we ask somebody who's hurting to rejoice? But when you're habitually aligning yourself with God's word and thinking through it, even in storms, what you're doing is preaching to yourself, God is with me. God is good. And this circumstance is not the end. And he assures you through that reminder over time. Uh, I read a powerful book called This Too Shall Last by K.J. Ramsey, and I highly recommend it to you. Uh, Ramsey suffers from an autoimmune disease. She says she can't remember what it's like to live a day without pain. And it's very clear to her that some diseases are not healed in this lifetime. So this book describes what it's like to walk with Jesus when you're always in a trial. 
And in one section, she talks about joy. Listen to what she writes. <laughs> we long for joy, and it's here. Christ's entire life, including his birth, anonymity, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection, can fuel our entire lives. Joy becomes the habit of our hearts when we encounter our ordinary lives as the place where Christ is present. The middle of the story, where you are right now, is the place where God is already meeting you, merging your life with his own. Your present discomfort has to bond with Christ's past faithfulness to create future hope. What she's saying here is that Christianity is not detached from your everyday life. Christ chose to walk one day at a time on earth so he could feel what you're feeling today. And when you're reading his story, you're preaching to yourself that he's there right in the middle of the mess with you. Jesus felt the isolation, the constant limitations and pains in his body, the betrayal of his closest friends, the stress, the loneliness, and the temptations. He felt all of that so he could be a merciful and faithful high priest for you in your darkest moments. And so when you're in the midst of a storm, God calls you to intentionally align yourself with the word, studying it. And in doing that, he wants you to see Jesus walking through his storms, weeping in his depression, paralyzed in his fears, and loving you as he's doing that. And the more you see that, the spirit develops a contentment inside your soul that even though life sucks today, I have Christ and he keeps me going. That's joy. Remember in the hymn, It Is Well, it doesn't say, whatever my lot, I am going to say, it is well with my soul. No, the hymn writer knows that sometimes we don't have the strength to say, it is well with my soul. Instead, the hymn says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Some of you are wrestling with some heavy circumstances in this season. My prayer is that the word can teach you over time how to see Jesus Jesus, you didn't just come here just to save me. No, you walked in the path that I'm walking, and that will produce a contentment in you that you're not alone. That's following joy. Second, following light. So the second part of this verse says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Uh, commandment means the same thing as precepts, referring to God's rules. And pure means there's no blemish or sin in it. So first, the psalmist uses the word right to talk about the word directing our souls to Christ. And then he uses pure to talk about the word being morally blameless. And the effect of that purity on us is that it enlightens our eyes. Now that phrase, enlightening the eyes, is a spiritual metaphor, right? It means improving the way we see ourselves and others in the world. See, the psalmist is teaching us that as we walk the Christian journey, God not only wants to produce joy in us by aligning us with his story, but he also wants to purify how we think, talk, and act as his people, another aspect of long-term fruit. Um, sometimes our spiritual eyes can get infected by the things we consume and take in, uh, whether it's in our environments, our digital platforms, or entertainment. Even if we're not engaging in explicitly evil acts, by allowing particular content or words to surround us, 
we might become less and less sensitive to injustice, less able to empathize, and less able to communicate honestly with people. In other words, just like opening our physical eyes to the world stimulates and forms our minds, opening our affections to the world can mold our character as human beings for good or bad. That's why one theologian asks, what are the things you're doing, doing to you? Family of God, Scripture tells us that our heart is deceitful above all things. You might not know how much a pattern or routine is affecting your soul and your perceptions. Uh, sometimes I, as I take a picture with my phone, Amy would wipe the lens on my phone and I would think to myself, wow, all this time I didn't realize how good my camera quality could be. When we're allowing the eyes of our heart to take in all the stuff without guard, especially in our sensory overload society, we won't be able to tell just how blurry our spiritual vision is becoming, and sometimes we just coast that way. Jesus cares too much about you to let you lose your spiritual clarity like that. He wants to keep wiping that lens on you, and the psalmist proclaims that he does that through the purity of his word. In 1987, there was an anti-drug commercial that most of you probably seen. Uh, it was an ad campaign by the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. And in it, you see a random dude in a kitchen. He walks over to the counter and picks up an egg. He says, this is your brain. He points to a scalding hot frying pan and says, this is drugs. Then he cracks the egg onto the pan, frying it instantly, and he says, this is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And obviously that was meant to scare people, but I always wondered what that ad meant for people whose lives were already affected by substance abuse. Uh, was it suggesting that people's, those people's brains were messed up forever? Well, since that commercial, there's been a lot more research on addiction, and it turns out that one of the most encouraging developments in brain science is this idea of neuroplasticity which means uh, the brain is able to reorganize and reform itself. Uh, it's true that a person's brain gets altered by addiction. The reward centers become unbalanced and you want more and more of a high. But it's also true that with continued therapy and treatment, the brain can reform itself back to health with better rhythms and patterns. And there's hope for a recovery. So sometimes specialists would use what they call cognitive behavioral therapy, doing things like helping the patient reflect on why they behave the way they do, uh, face the negative effects of their behavior, and try to get them away from their triggers, things like that. And of course, addiction is very difficult to overcome. My sister is an ad addiction treatment nurse, uh, but there are always stories of hope, she tells me, because of that possibility of change. And I mentioned that because if the brain has neuroplasticity, this ability to bounce back, I wonder if we can think of our sanctification in the same way, a soul plasticity, the ability of our heart to recover and reorient itself toward pure uh, purity and truth. But we need that continuous treatment of the word to help us do that, like a healing balm to slowly remove the things that have been harmful to us. Who or what have you been allowing into your life to disciple you? What routines or idols are clouding your sense of purpose? Is it the American dream that you have to achieve until you die? Is it the Disney dream that you're supposed to meet your person? 
Or the influencer dream that you're only seen if you're an expert. Uh, is it Zillow or LinkedIn? Sometimes these things can prevent us from seeing the value of us and others in his image. So we allow his word to center us back into our union with Christ daily. That cleansing cycle, enlightening our eyes and repairing our souls to see ourselves and others with God's grace and justice. That's following the light. And lastly, following perfection. Let's go back to these descriptions of his precepts and commandments. It says they're right and pure. Uh, there's no fault or blemish in his word. Now, as much as these adjectives are pointing to God's own character, he also gives us this right and pure word, which means it's, it's a sign of what he wants to accomplish in us one day. God wants to make us a right and pure people, just like him, perfected in his image. And so every time we meditate on his precepts and commandments, he's promising in there that one day we will be with him in glory. King's Cross, there are things in our lives we wish didn't happen to us. And there are things we wish we didn't do. Some of these things we have to carry for the rest of our lives, and that's hard to come to terms with. Maybe you feel crushed by that. But if our God is true, and Christ really died and rose again, then our wounds and our shame and our regrets will one day have an end date. These things will not have the last word over you and me. You will be made right and pure in the new heavens and new earth. Look at it says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's not just Jesus' wish. That's his sovereign will. Jesus will commit to bringing you into that future. And he invites you to set your eyes on that hope today. You might remember the famous footage from the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games during the 100-meter, 400-meter dash. A British runner named Derek Redmond stood at the starting line about to run the race he trained for his entire life. At the starting signal, Redmond charged out and made good speed for the first 250 meters of the run. But suddenly he came to a sharp halt, his body jerking upward in pain, his right hand seizing his leg. His right hamstring had just snapped. As the other runners rushed past him, Redmond slowed down to a limp and finally knelt to the ground, unable to move any farther. But when the medical experts came to check on him, Redmond decided to stand back up and hop on one leg along the track, determined to finish the race, even in pain. And he inched forward slowly as the crowd was watching him. But as he was doing that, out of nowhere, a man from the bleachers ran out onto the track towards Redmond. The Olympic staff tried to block him and hold him back, thinking it was a fan about to disrupt the race. But they couldn't stop him, and the man got right up next to Redmond, putting his arm around Redmond's waist, held him up, and began walking with him. And when Redmond looked beside him to see who it was, he broke down in tears 
because the man holding him up was his father, Jim, desperately pushing to support his son all the way through to the finish line. Child of God, there are going to be obstacles in your Christian journey. Some of you know that all too well. But as you follow the word, and he produces that priceless, long-term fruit in you of joy and light, you'll feel him holding you, and he's going to cross the finish line with you. Keep your eyes, keep your eyes on that. So what did we say this morning? Over the long haul, following his word produces joy and hardship because we're connected with Christ's presence. It produces enlightenment because it's clearing up how we see ourselves and others, and it brings us reminders that we will be right and pure together one day in Christ. Hear this as we close from 2 Corinthians 4. So we don't lose heart, King's Cross. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes for eternity.